Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20. There it says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would have helped you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to gather together tonight, and Lord, to open up the very word of life. And Lord, we do pray that you teach us, Lord, that uh, we might judge truly and properly as we go through this world, Lord, not condemning the innocent and Lord, not justifying the wicked. Lord, help us to see and understand that it is what comes out of us, Lord, that defiles. Lord, it is sin that defiles a man in your sight. And Lord, we pray that uh, you forgive us of our sins, Lord, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that, Lord, you would purify us in your sight. We thank you that you have done that uh, at our salvation. But, Lord, we pray that you continue to do that throughout our life, through our sanctification. Lord, that you would daily remove sin more and more from us. And, Lord, cause us to walk in purity and in holiness before you. So, Father, we pray that you uh, teach us tonight. And that, Lord, you might sanctify us uh, by your word. Lord, knowing that your word is truth. So, Lord, bless our time together and help us, Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, Matthew chapter 15 uh, is where we're at tonight. And there are a couple of seats up here if there's uh, anyone needs. There's there's two there and then there's some there on the back as well. Okay, Matthew 15. So here in this passage, Jesus is dealing with a controversy a controversy that was brought to his attention uh, by the scribes and Pharisees, a criticism that was labeled against his disciples. And really, when they're bringing this against his disciples, 
they're ultimately charging it at Jesus, right? He's the one that they really have a problem with. And he's the one that they're trying to do this, though they're using the disciples as a proxy in order to bring a condemnation against Jesus. Because if his disciples are doing this and they're his disciples, then they're doing it with his approval. So ultimately they are labeling the charge against Christ, right? Against Jesus and saying these things to him. And this is a good uh, passage for dealing with traditions uh, versus commandments and what happens when people uh, add to the Bible and introduce things into the word of God that are foreign to the Bible. Because many times when people uh, are talking about their traditions or whatever it is that they're adding to the Bible, they'll never say that their intention is to contradict the Bible. They'll say that they love the Word of God, that they want to keep the Word of God, and that their traditions actually help them do this, right? Help them do this more faithfully. But actually, this isn't the case at all. The Word of God is completely sufficient, and we don't need these traditions in order to help us keep the commandment of God. We just need the commandment. The commandment is sufficient in itself. And ultimately, what happens is that these traditions become the forefront and they actually smother and invalidate and contradict the word of God, right? The very commandment of God. So the ones that are claiming to want to follow the Bible very meticulously and the commandments of God very faithfully and diligently, they actually, this is all a smokescreen. They don't really want this at all. Really, they want their own traditions. They want their own ideas, their own opinions, their own philosophies, their own virtues, and they love those things and they hate the word of God, but they use these to drown out the word of God, right? All on the sake of keeping the word of God. This is the way it is. And that's what's happening here. And this is why Jesus addresses it and confronts it, but showing what's really going on, right? In the scribes and Pharisees. So here in verse one and two, it says that some of the scribes, uh, some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Here the criticism or the charge is that the disciples are breaking the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders. Now, automatically that should be a red flag for us. Right? Why are we talking about the traditions of the elders? Right? Who told them to do these things, right? Where did this come from, right? Why should we listen to the traditions of the elders, right? What is the reason that they are following this and why are they bringing this up? So automatically that right there should be a red flag, a problem, right? Something, right? They're not talking about the prophets. They're not talking about Moses and the prophets or Moses and the prophets and the writings. They're not talking about that. We're talking about the traditions of the elders, so why are they not doing these things, not following them? Because everyone else is following them. We follow them, the scribes and Pharisees. We are the religious leaders, and we're telling everyone else to follow them, but you guys are not following them. So why aren't you like everyone else? Right? Why are you different? But we shouldn't follow a multitude in doing evil. Right. If what the multitude is doing and what is commonly practiced is contrary to the word of God, then we have to reject it. Right? We have to reject it. Even though people will say, Oh, that seems like a cult to me, right? That seems very cultish because no one else is doing that. You're the only ones that are, are not doing this. Well, we just have to do what's right in the sight of God. And they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. This is the charge. Now, again, the question is, where does the Bible teach that one must wash their hands before they eat bread at any time? 
and that if they don't, now again, we're not meaning if someone has been working in the sewer and he has filth all over his hands, that of course he's going to wash his hands before he eats bread. We're not talking about hygiene. We're not talking about sanitation. They're meaning it in the sense of sin, that if you eat without washing your hands, you are sinning against God and that you are injecting sin into your life and that you are unrighteous in the sight of God. This is how they mean it, right? They mean it in this sense of sin and righteousness and that this is a standard of righteousness in their own mind of what people need to do in order to be right in the sight of God. They're going and they're not washing their hands before they eat bread. But where in the Bible does it teach this principle, this commandment, this truth, that in order to be right before God, in order to be righteous in the sight of God, to be obedient and faithful to God, you must wash your hands before you eat bread. Where is it at in the Bible? Right? It's not there. Now, of course, there are washing rituals in the Bible. And there were certain rituals that were expected in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, but not to this extreme, right? And not in this scenario and in this situation. So again, who told them to do this? Well, it didn't come from Moses and it didn't come from the prophets. So it's coming from their own mind, their own mind, their own ingenuity and innovations. And now they're using this standard that they themselves have, cre have created, the tradition of the elders, and they're using that as the standard by which to judge other people. And now they're condemning someone who is innocent. The disciples aren't doing anything wrong, but they are now condemning the innocent man. And they've done this already in the Gospel of Matthew. Whenever the disciples were walking through the field and they were plucking heads of grain and eating it, they were charging them with breaking the Sabbath day. But they weren't breaking the Sabbath day. And they didn't understand the word of God. And had they understood the word of God, Jesus says, you would not have condemned the innocent or the righteous. But this is what they are doing. In Mark chapter 7, we'll actually reference Mark 7 a few times tonight because this is the parallel account in the gospel of Mark. And there is, uh, he gives some more information that is not in Matthew. So Mark chapter 7 verses 1 to 4 gives us more insight into these traditions and what the scribes and Pharisees and the Jews were adhering to, what they were doing. And it shows you the miserable state of the church during that time, right? Because this was commonly being practiced by all of the Jews, though it's contrary to the word of God. And actually it overturns and invalidates the word of God, right? Mark 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So they're doing this not only in this one area of washing the hands, but in many other areas as well, right? If they go to the marketplace, they must cleanse themselves. And they're doing this as a standard of righteousness, of obedience, of faithfulness 
to God. That's the way that they mean it, and that is the way that they are observing these things. And now they're criticizing the disciples because the disciples are not adhering to these traditions, Jesus and his disciples. And we remember in Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs 30, verses 5 to 6, this was our memory verse a few months back. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. So we should not add to the word of God. And if we do, we will be reproved by God. And we will be proven to be a liar. Okay, well, that truth there, which will be manifested universally on the day of judgment, is going to be manifested here in this controversy with the scribes and Pharisees because Jesus is going to prove them to be liars. They're going to be found to be liars and that they are the ones adding to the word of God and that they are the ones that need to be reproved. So they are reproving Jesus and his disciples, but Jesus is going to turn that and actually reprove them because they're the ones in sin, not the other way around. So he will confront them. And that's why he does in verse 3. He answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus answers their question by asking them a question. Right? You ask me why we don't keep the tradition of the elders. Well, let me ask you a question. Why do you right, transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why are you placing more importance on your traditions than you are the commandment of God? Right? You say that you want to follow God. You say that you want to be faithful to God, but you don't because you are right, smothering and transgressing the very commandment of God. And if you ask any of them, right, which is more important, the commandment of God or the tradition of the elders, they would all say, oh, the commandment of God. Right? Everyone would have to say that, yet in this case, they're being hypocrites because they're saying that they adhere to the commandment of God, but actually they're transgressing it and they're doing so for the sake of their traditions. So they charge Jesus and Jesus turns around and charges him, right? This is the way that he does it. He doesn't say, let me pray about it. Let me think about it. Let me, you know, you've given me a lot to think about here. He doesn't need to because immediately he knows that this is ridiculous. There's no basis for this. Now, again, if you do this, what will people immediately accuse you of? You're proud. You're very proud and arrogant. You have no humility. You didn't even listen to what I had to say. Actually, I had someone say that to me one time. You didn't listen to a word that I had to say after he gave me suggestions. He gave me many suggestions for how I could be more winsome and charming. Not only me, but Pastor Ish, also from Texas. We both were un not winsome and charming. He gave us many suggestions, and we didn't listen to his suggestions. And then he said, you, you're arrogant. You didn't listen to anything I said. You're very proud. Well, Jesus... And, and we didn't uh, tell him this to his face on the spot. We did listen to him and we did at least consider it. But then we said, there's no basis for this. And so we moved on and it was a week later. But Jesus does this immediately, immediately. But this is what people would do. They would say, he's, he's full of pride. He's full of arrogance. He didn't listen to anything that we had to say. He didn't even consider it. He just immediately went on the attack. He went on the offensive, right? In order to... Uh, to make himself look right and to make us look wrong. But who's right and who's wrong here? Jesus is right. And it's not that Jesus is 50% right and 50% wrong and they're half right and half wrong or 
Jesus is 90% right, but they're 10% right. Because that's the other thing that people will say. Well, you know, everyone's got a little fault here, a little fault there. Well, not in this situation. Jesus is 100% right, and they are 100% in the wrong. And that is the way it is. So he turns the tables and asks them, why are you transgressing the commandment for your tradition? Then verse 4. For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Here, he's going to bring this example forward in order to show and to illustrate what he's just stated. Right? The illust- the, what he stated is, that you transgress the commandment for the sake of your tradition. Now, let me show you this. Let me illustrate this with this example, right? With this scenario, this situation that is true and was being commonly practiced during this time. God says, God says, so not uh, the opinion of man, not the tradition of the elder, not this scribe or that rabbi or this book or that book, but God said this. This is what God said. And what did God say? He said, honor your father and your mother. This is the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. So, Ten Commandments, and he's bringing forward number five. So, if there are Ten Commandments, can we say that this is at least in the top ten of most important commandments in the Bible? Right? It's in the top ten of because it's in the Ten Commandments. Very important commandment. We're not talking about some, something uh, here on the side, something in the periphery. We're not talking even about a ritual or a ceremony. We're talking about one of the ten holy commandments of God. And who is the one that gave those commandments? God did. God says this. Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. You have the commandment and then you have the punishment. What is the just punishment for a child? And here we're not talking about a two or three-year-old child in the home who is disobedient to their parents, right? That that child needs to be taken out and put to death. Though, again, In terms of sin before God, all sin is worthy of death. And disobedience of the children toward their parents is worthy of eternal death. And they must repent of that sin and put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of that sin and what other other sins that they commit. But here in the Old Testament law, when it's speaking of the death penalty, right? That's what he's talking about here. The death penalty for a son who speaks evil of father or mother. This would be a very flagrant uh, violation of the fifth commandment, that any son who speaks evil deserves to be put to death and to have the penalty of death, public execution, for the violation of the fifth commandment. Now, he's adding this to the commandment here in order to show the severity of it. That Again, we're not talking about something that is insignificant. We're talking about a very important commandment one that is so important that a violation of it in this high regard is worthy of the death penalty. This is how serious we need to take it, right? Don't we believe that even in our own society? If there is a crime that receives the death penalty and we hear that this person was sentenced to death to die by execution 
because of the crime that they committed, we automatically know they must have committed a very serious offense, right? That it's not that they were speeding five miles over the speed limit or that they were jaywalking across the town or that they threw litter out of their car while driving down the road, right? If they're receiving that penalty, we know they must have done something very severe, right? Very severe, a very aggravated crime. Well, there was that penalty for the one who spoke evil against his father and mother. Now, let's see that indeed the Bible does teach these principles, these truths, these commandments. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So there is the commandment. Honor your father and mother. And it's the first commandment with a promise, that your days may be prolonged. Long life. Promise to those who honor their father and their mother. Also, in terms of the breakdown of the Ten Commandments, we speak of them, the first four commandments, the first table of the law, teaching us how to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, might, and strength. And then the second table of the law, teaching us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are the two great commandments. And then those two great commandments are further explained or clarified in the Ten Commandments. The first four, teaching us how to love God. And then the, other, the last six, teaching us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, in terms of loving your neighbor as yourself, what is the first commandment that teaches us to love our neighbor as ourself? Honor your father and mother. And this commandment is very important because this is typically the first commandment children are taught, right? That they are taught how to honor God by first honoring their parents, how to submit to and, and understand proper authority, proper punishment by being in the home under the authority and under the will of their parents. And this is so, this commandment is extremely important. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And without it, I mean, without the home and the family, then everything crumbles in society. And without there being a proper relationship between first the husband and wife, and then secondly, the parents and the children, then you have no society. Everything, and this is evident in our own day. Just look around, and this is what's happening in America today. So this is an important commandment. Also, Deuteronomy 5.16. Deuteronomy 5.16. Here we have this repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. So that is without any refutation that Moses commanded them twice through God, God commanding them through Moses twice to honor father and mother explicitly here in these passages. Then the punishment. What is the punishment for those who break this commandment? Well, Exodus 21, Exodus chapter 21 and verse 17. Exodus 21, 17 says, he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So a child, a son, a daughter who curses father and mother, 
shall surely be put to death. And there are examples and instances, even today, where these types of sins are committed, and that's what the children deserve. Now, they don't get it today. Um, we, I knew a man once, and his uh, adult son, who was in high school, adult enough, and he had a disagreement with him, and the son punched his own father in the face. Punched him in the face. He came to work with a big black eye, and they had to call the police, and the kid was put into a juvenile home. That's what this is talking about. That son who has no restraint, who has so little self-control over his anger and his rage and no respect for his father. Well, if he'll do that to his own father, then what else will he do in society? No, there's no telling what he'll do. So that's why he deserves to be put to death. He's a menace and a threat to society. Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20 Verse 9, Leviticus 29, If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. So here, again, the same. He's cursing his father and his mother. In this profane way, he deserves to be put to death. Then also one other passage, Proverbs chapter 20 Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 20. <clears throat> Proverbs twenty twenty. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. So they are repeated this uh, commandment and this uh, punishment in Proverbs twenty twenty. And I say that because many times people will Many people who reject the Old Testament, they still say, well, Proverbs and Psalms are still beneficial for Christians today. Well, even Proverbs is teaching that we should not curse our father or our mother. Now, so the point Jesus is making is this commandment is in the Bible. God is the one who said it. It's a very important commandment because even the death penalty in some cases is permitted for those who commit and expected for those who break this commandment. Now, isn't it true that honoring our father and mother, now, is this something that's only true of us in our childhood? Do, are we expected to honor our father and mother while we're children, but then when we leave the house, we can do whatever we want. We can say whatever we want about them. Uh, we, can, uh, we don't have to show any respect, any honor to them. Is it only for the time when we're in the home, or is it, does it extend outside of the home, and does it go with us our entire life, even into adulthood, even into old age, even into the old age of our parents. And of course, it extends for all of our life. They are our parents. Are, they are our father and mother until the day that they die. And even after they're dead, we should honor them in the proper way. We shouldn't speak evil or slander them or criticize them in ways that are unjust, right? that are unjust. So we should honor them when we are children in the home by respecting them, by obeying them, by doing what they tell us to do. Then even after we leave the home and are married, right, and have our own family, then we should still honor them by giving them proper respect, speaking to them in tender ways, in loving ways, right, listening to them when they give us good advice, not thinking that we know everything. And then in their old age, what should we do? We should take care of them. We should make a repayment 
to our parents because in their old age, they're not able to care for themselves, right? In their old age, they're not able to go to work anymore. They can't go do the things that they did. And there are many times when people reach a certain type in life where they are an invalid, where they are infirmed in the sense that they cannot even cook for themselves. They need help to get up and go to the restroom. They need help doing, they don't have the ability to care for themselves. Should children neglect their parents in their old age? Of course not. They should honor them by providing for them, by caring for them, by assisting them in their old age and giving to them the respect and honor that they deserve. Right? And they deserve it because when you were a baby, did you change your own diapers? No. Did you fix your own meals? No. Did you wash your own clothes? No. So it's ungrateful. It's ungrateful and it's unjust for a child to fail to do that for his own parents. When the parents did it for him, when he wasn't able to do anything for himself. So this is the way it all works out in terms of justice before God. They care for us in our childhood. We care for them in their old age, right? According to the normal progression of time and the way things normally work out. Now, there are some times when the child may die prematurely and the parents outlive them. Well, that's an exception. But generally speaking, the parents die before the children and the parents become old and then they need someone to care for them and the children should do so. This is an obvious application of the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And does the Bible expect this? Does the New Testament even expect this? Yes. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy 5 verses 3 to 8. Says this. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren... They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So there in teaching about honoring widows and what widows in the church are deserving of support by the church, right? By the church, he makes this point that if any widow who's in the church has children or grandchildren, then the children and grandchildren must first Learn to practice piety. Piety is another way of saying godliness or righteousness. So this is an issue of righteousness. And if a person is not doing this, then they're ungodly. They're unrighteous. So if we have a parent, a mom who's a widow, or a father who is a widower, or if both our father and mother are both alive, but they're unable to care for themselves, then we must first learn to practice piety in regards to our own family by taking care of them. And he says, make some return to their parents. That's what we mentioned earlier. It's an issue of justice and fairness. 
right? You need to pay them back for what they did for you when you were a little brat, right? And you were running around and not taking care, making a big mess everywhere, puking all over the floor, not getting to the bathroom in time. That's what kids do, right? And who has to clean all that up? The parents do. And do they gripe and complain about it? Well, I mean, if it's me, I do. But, uh, but the mothers, really, they don't. But uh, no, they don't do that. They do it, and it's difficult, but it's what we do because this is part of raising children. Well, we make a return to them in their old age. And if a person doesn't do that, then what does the Apostle Paul say about them? He's worse than an unbeliever. Don't even unbelievers do this? Sure they do. Many Muslims, many Hindus, many Buddhists, even many atheists, the children provide for their aging parents. So shouldn't we then as Christians know to do this, to care for our family in this way. And shouldn't the Jews who have the Bible know to do this with their parents? When the unbelievers, the Romans, the Greeks, the pagans, they're doing this, but the Jews aren't? Like, and they're the ones that have the Bible? How can this be? Right? How can that be the case? Also, First uh, Timothy 5.16. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows. She must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So there, if a woman is a believer and has widows who are dependent, meaning they need support, they need help, then she needs to assist them and not burden the church. And then the church should take care of those who don't have anyone to help them. Those are the ones that the church should then come in and help. Okay, also in conjunction with this, James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. <clears throat> this is an, a matter of righteousness, true religion, true faith. So we can't re uh, regulate it to some tertiary issue that isn't a matter of doctrine. It's not a matter of faith. It's not uh, an important issue. No, it's a very important issue. James 1, 26, if anyone thinks he himself to be religious and is, does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Can you go to heaven with worthless religion? No, you cannot go to heaven with worthless religion. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So pure, undefiled religion, right? That's good religion. There's bad religion and there's good religion. This is the good religion that we want, pure and undefiled before God, is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. And if that widow is our own mother, then of course we should help her. We should help her and assist her in whatever way that we can. Okay, so that's what God says on the issue. And is that... Uh, confusing? Is that dark, cloudy, unclear? No, it's very clear, crystal clear. There's no ambiguity, no confusion in what God expects. Okay, then we go to verse 7. Wait, no, verse 5, sorry. Verse 5, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. 
and by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Here, the contrast is between God says, this is what God says, now this is what you say. You, you say this, God says this, and what God says and what you say are in opposition to one another. They're in contradiction to one another, right? And this would be the same as like in Acts chapter 5, verse 39, where Gamaliel says, you may even be found opposing God. Do we want to be found opposing God? Do we want to find out that we're teaching or promoting something that is in opposition to God and to what God says? That should cause us to tremble, to be terrified, to be frightened, that we would be saying something and promoting something that is contrary to what God says. But that's what they're doing here. You say this, but what you're saying is in direct opposition and contradiction to what God says. So where is their fear of God at? They should shudder to hear these things, what Christ is saying to them. Well, what do they say? You say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would have helped you has been given to God. Or uh, this is the term korban, korban, which means gift, a gift. You say that if someone designates the funds that they have to help their parents, and they make a vow, and they designate it as a gift to God, right? This is a gift to God. Then now they are not able to use that money, to use those funds to help their parents. And there they are invalidating the word of God, right? This is what they are doing. And isn't it true that people like, they get caught up in these ideas of, oh, it's, it's, it's more spiritual, to give our money to the temple than it is to help our aging parents, right? It's more spiritual to do something. Now, we're not talking about regular tithes and offerings. Of course, we have our regular tithes and offerings that it is our duty and obligation to give those to God. Those belong to God, and we should give to God what belongs to God, right? Give to, to God what is His. So he's not talking about that, but he's talking about that which is remaining, after we give what is obligated to God, then whatever else we have is for our use, to use for our families, to benefit our children, to benefit others, to help one another, to do those kinds of things. And a part of the proper use of that, the responsible use of our money, the godly use of our money, is providing for our aging parents. But now that money, which was set aside for that, has been dedicated to the temple. Oh, and that sounds very religious, right? Very spiritual. We're not going to use it for some mundane reason, some earthly, worldly reason. We want to use it for a spiritual reason. And they'll typically, they'll pat them on the back. They'll give them some special blessing. They'll promise them some special place. Don't churches do that? Don't religious people? They encourage this type of giving, this type of irresponsible giving to the neglect of other duties. They put in contradiction things that are not in contradiction. The temple versus helping your aging parents. And then they elevate one over the other and then they encourage people to give to this and to neglect that. And then the people think that they're doing something great and honoring to God, but are they? No, they're not doing that at all. And this happens many times and in many churches. Whether this is the Baptist churches, it happens in the Pentecostal churches, it happens in the Catholic churches where they'll leave their money They'll leave their fortunes, instead of leaving it to their children, to their grandchildren, they'll leave it to the church because the church guarantees that they'll get them into heaven. 
They'll give them some spiritual blessing. And we know that the scribes and Pharisees were lovers of what? They loved money. And Jesus says that they love to devour widows' houses. They also do that as well. So they use these types of manipulations on the people. They promote this type of false piety, false spirituality in order to milk money out of the people. And if the people give it as a gift to God, who's going to get a cut of it? They are, are, right? They're doing it for their own benefit. They're promoting this tradition, but they're doing it for themselves. So whatever would have been used to support the parents is now given to God. They've made a vow, and that vow now makes it to where they cannot use that money to support their parents. So when their parents are in their distress and they come to their children, well, we can't help you. We can't help you because we've dedicated this money to the temple. So then the parents are left to beg, to live there in misery, to starve, whatever happens to them, happens all in the name of God, all in the name of religion. You see how they're blaspheming God, taking God's name in vain, using spiritual things, good things in a corrupt, evil way in order to benefit themselves? And again, this is very common, very common. It happens today as well, all over the place. Don't people do this? They, the money that they should be using to care for their children, to provide for their family, they give to these false teachers, these charlatans. Because they told me, if, you, if I send $1,000 to you, then I'll get 10000 back. And they believe that. And instead of saving it up for their own retirement one day so that they have something to live on, giving it to their children, doing something beneficial for their family or for someone else that they know, they give it to these false teachers under the guise, the promise of some spiritual benefit. And it's all a big, fat scam. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what they are doing here. So, you have created this tradition of korban, and if a person dedicates this money as a gift to God, then he is not to honor his father and mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You are rejecting, invalidating, contradicting the fifth commandment for the sake of your tradition that you have created out of your own mind and imagination for your own selfish benefit, your own greed. This is what you people are doing. Okay, verse seven. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. Here, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, is he saying this behind their back? No, he's saying it to their face, to their face. And is it a true statement? Yes. Is it, is it sinful to call someone a hypocrite if they're a hypocrite? No. If someone is lying, is it sinful to call them a liar? No. It's not sinful to call someone what they are. And that's what they are. They're hypocrites. They are hypocrites because they claim to be very studious students of Scripture. Very serious-minded. No, we love the law of God. We love Moses. We are disciples of Moses, they even claim. These are the things that they say about themselves. We are faithful, careful observers of the law of Moses, and we love the law of God. Yet here, they don't really love the law of God, because if they love God's law, would they not be teaching the people to honor their father and mother in the proper way? Of course they would. But they're not teaching that. They're invalidating it. 
So whatever they say about their love of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the Word of God, the Bible, how much they are careful to follow it, observe it, whatever they're saying is being contradicted by their actions and what they are teaching and promoting. So they are hypocrites. They don't really believe all of the things that they are saying. They love their traditions. They don't love Moses. They love their traditions. And actually, they hate Moses. And if Moses was there, they would put him to death alongside Jesus. They would take one of the thieves down, and they'd put Moses up there next to Christ. And they'd crucify him along with Jesus. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We'll see here that they claim to be disciples of Moses. John 9, 28. This is the blind man that was healed. John 9, 28. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. So we, they say, we are disciples of Moses. We follow Moses. And we know God spoke to Moses. Well, if God spoke to Moses, then why are you contradicting Moses? Why aren't you following and listening to the teachings of Moses? They're not. They're not disciples of Moses, not at all. They are rejecters of Moses, deniers of Moses, but they claim to be disciples of Moses. This is Romans 2, 17 to 24. Romans 2, 17 to 24. And this same truth is obvious. It's apparent in Christianity as well. This wasn't a problem with the Jews. This is a problem with sinful men. Sinful men. And it's true in Christianity as well. Many people claim to be Christians. They claim to love the Bible. They follow the Bible. But they, they don't. They don't really. They reject it. They contradict it all over the place. Right? They do it all the time. While at the same time saying that they love it. Right? Romans 2, 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, you, uh, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So there, they claim to love the law, right? They teach the law. They are guiding all other people, but then they are not practicing what they preach. They preach against stealing, but they steal. They say you shouldn't commit adultery, but they commit adultery. They say that they abhor idols, but they rob temples. This is what they are doing. And here they say they love the law, but they break the law. So if you're preaching, honor your father and mother, then do it. Keep it. Keep it and teach others to do it. But you're using these uh, deceptive ways to actually abrogate the very law of God that you claim to adhere to. And then are saying that your traditions help you keep it, which is a big fat 
lie as well. Okay, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah prophesied of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Here he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah chapter 29, 13. This is what Isaiah said in his own generation. This was true in Isaiah's day. And it's also true in the days of Christ. And in whose else's day will it be true of? It'll be true in our day as well. Isaiah 29, 13. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. These are the traditions of men. They say that they revere me, but their reverence isn't a strict desire to obey me and my law, but rather their own traditions that they have created that actually overthrow the law of God. This is what they are doing. Now, this is legalism. What they are doing is promoting true legalism, okay? Now, many times people will accuse us of being legalists because we want to obey God. We want to obey the word of God. We want to obey the commandments of God. But is obeying the commandments of God because we love God, is that legalism? No. Is talking about obedience legalism? Is talking about righteousness legalism? Is saying the word commandment legalism? Law legalism? Precept? Statutes? Ordinances? Judgments? Right? These are all the words from Psalm 119. Right? No, that's not legalism. Right? Legalism is not being obedient to God. Propping up a man-made tradition as a commandment, that is legalism because you're adding to the word of God. You're adding to or you're subtracting from whatever it is. This is what legalism consists of or a way in which people commit legalism. There's other ways that they do that as well, but this is one of the forms of legalism. So reading Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and mother, thinking about that, talking about it. Okay, how do we practice this? How do we apply this day in and day out? What does this look like for us in the home, out of the home, when in our old age? In working through those issues and saying, okay, I want to know what this means. What are other passages that inform me and instruct me and help me understand this more clearly so that I can be careful to obey it and honor my father and mother in the right way? That's not legalism. But people today will say that's legalism because you're thinking, you know, objectively and carefully about the law of God because you want to obey it. That's not legalism. That is righteousness, godliness. That's fear of the Lord. That's what we need to be doing if we're doing it for the right motive. Now, if we're doing that because we're saying, if I do this commandment and I keep it meticulously, I'm going to earn my way to, to heaven through my own works. Though that would be legalism. But if we're doing it because we want to obey God, I want to please God. I want to honor God because he saved me. He's given me his grace. He's changed my heart. And now I have new desires and I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. I want to live a godly and a righteous life. And I see that this commandment is in the Bible. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. That's undeniable. And also natural law is telling me that this is good and right. So I want to know how do I practice this in the right way? And I want to talk to other people about it. Let's talk about it and discuss it and try to figure all this out so that we can obey God. That is righteousness. That's godliness. That's the way that we should be. But 
people will criticize and say that this is legalism. But that's not what's going on here. The Pharisees, or they'll say it's Pharisaicalism. The Pharisees, what they're doing is adding to the Bible. They're having this tradition that doesn't have any basis in the Bible, washing your hands before you eat bread, and then saying that if you don't do this, you're sinning against God. That is itself legalism. And they do this not only in that regard, but in many other ways as well. It says so in Mark chapter 7, verse 13. In Mark 7, 13, he says, at the end of this passage, he says, in many such things you do. Many such things. Here's one example of it, but you do this in many other ways as well. Many other ways that you commit this sin against God. And people still do it today, right? This is still common in the churches today, right? In the churches that I grew up in, one of the big no-nos or sins that or the greatest sins that a person could commit was to have a sip of alcohol. A sip of alcohol was considered to be a great sin against God. And even the church I grew up in, the church covenant, had a statement that forbid the sale and use of any alcoholic beverages, any alcoholic beverages. But does the Bible teach that? Does the Bible teach that standard? No. Now, of course, the Bible condemns drunkenness. It condemns excess, but it does not condemn any drinking of any alcohol. And actually, in Psalm 104, in Psalm 104, verse 15, it actually says this. 104, 15. It says, And wine, which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil. Here, he's speaking of God and the gifts, the good gifts that God gives to men. And one of those good gifts is wine. Yet, the churches were teaching that that was a sin. So in that tradition, that standard that they're teaching, what are they actually repudiating? Well, they're repudiating Psalm 104.15. They're repudiating what God says is good and that God has given as a gift to men, and they're saying, no, God didn't give that, it's evil. Or they're saying God is evil for giving that gift to men. So there is an example, even in our own modern day, where people do these types of things. And there's many, many other examples that could be brought forward as well. Now back to Matthew chapter 15, verse 10. 10 and 11. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Okay, now he used this example, and now he's going back to the issue of defilement. What is it that makes a man unclean in the sight of God? Right? What is it that defiles a man in God's sight? Is it externals? Is it merely those things that are physical? Is a man pure in God's sight? And then if he comes into contact with a handrail and a sinner touched that handrail, someone who was unclean, and then he touched it with his hand and then used that hand to pick up a piece of bread and then he put that bread into his mouth and swallowed it. Is he now defiled before God in his whole body because he touched a handrail and then used it to pick up bread and put it in his mouth? But if he would have washed his hands first, then he would have washed that defilement off and then he would be clean in the sight of God. Does that make any sense at all? 
Of course not. It's ridiculous. But that's what they're teaching, right? That's the thing that they're teaching. So that's what Jesus is correcting. It's not these external physical things that defile a person eating with unclean hands as they are saying it. That's not what contaminates a man. But rather, it is what comes out of the man, out of his mouth, because the mouth manifests what's in the heart. The defilement comes from within, right? From within the heart of man. That's what makes someone impure in the sight of God, defiled in the sight of God, a sinner in the sight of God, right? Worthy of condemnation in the sight of God. It is the heart that reveals the state of the man, whether that man is clean or whether that man is unclean. If what comes out of his mouth is unclean, then what do I know about his heart? He has an unclean heart. If what comes out of his mouth is pure and clean, then what do I know about his heart? His heart is pure and clean, right? It's pure and clean. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, 34. 1234, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So if the word of God has been treasured in our heart, then our mouth is going to speak out of that treasure, that good treasure. And who's going to put the word of God in their heart, right? Not an unbeliever, not a wicked man. He didn't care about the word of God. But the believer is, right? He's going to want the word of God in his heart. He has the spirit of God in his heart. So he's going to speak those good things. But the evil man will bring forth his evil out of his heart. And that's what defiles a man. Or that's what reveals that the man is defiled, right? It is what comes out of his heart. Verses 12 to 14. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind guide, if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Here, the disciples after this come and they want to inform him. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? You know, everything that you're saying, it, it offended them. It upset them, right? They didn't like it, right? This is what happened when you said these things. Well, is Jesus concerned about this? Does he have consternation? Is he pulling out his hair and saying, oh, I, I didn't mean to offend anyone. I can't believe that. They, they, they must have misunderstood me. They must have taken it the wrong way. And, and I need to go to them immediately and apologize and, and smooth everything out because I don't want them to be upset with me. No, he doesn't do that at all, right? Here, is giving an offense in and of itself a sin? No, not in this case, right? Giving an offense is in and of itself not evil. Now, the basis for the offense, that's what we have to define, right? Here, why are they offended? Well, they're offended because Jesus is speaking truth in contradiction to their lies, but that's not an evil thing. God does this all the time. The word of God is offensive to all unbelievers because the word of God is true and it speaks against their lies. It exposes their lies. So the word of God is highly offensive to unbelievers because it contradicts and it exposes them. And if we're speaking the truth of God's word in contradiction to the lies of the world, then it will give offense to people. 
Now, we're not doing it by berating them. We're not calling them ugly names. We're not beating them over the head with a baseball bat. Of course we shouldn't do that. We're not ranting and raving and foaming at the mouth like a maniac and a lunatic. Of course we shouldn't be doing that. And Jesus isn't doing that. But if the truth offends, then whose fault is that? Is it the fault of the speaker or is the fault on the hearer? It's on them, right? The, the fault lies with them. The sin lies with them. The offense has occurred, but the basis for the offense is their sin, right? Not Jesus's words. Though they would say, no, he offended me. Well, yeah, but the reason you're offended is because you don't want to repent of your sin. So you're the one who is at fault, not Jesus. And that's why Jesus isn't going to go and apologize to them. He's not going to smooth it over and, and uh, sweep it under the rug or, or make sure that everything is good and hunky-dory between him and the scribes and Pharisees. He knows what's going on here. The reason they're offended is because they're enemies, enemies of God, enemies of the gospel. They hate the truth. They're children of the devil. The devil is offended by the word of God. Are we going to go smooth things over with him? No, of course not. So Jesus isn't going to do that with his children either. So the disciples are concerned. Don't you know you offended them? But Jesus isn't concerned at all. And this is the way that we have to be as well. Again, we just have to speak what is true. And if people are offended with the truth, then that's on them. That's on them. And again, we're not talking about being a jerk. We're not talking about being a loudmouth. We're not talking about ranting and raving. No one's doing that. But speaking the truth will be offensive. But if someone is offended when they hear the statement, when they hear the word of God, then what is that manifesting about that person? That they're unbelievers, right? That they don't belong to God, that they have not been planted by the Lord. Because if they're planted by the Lord, what will they do when they hear the truth? They will obey it. They will obey it. The flesh may resist momentarily, temporarily, but ultimately they're going to obey it and they're going to come to their senses and be reasonable and say, yes, it is what the word of God says and that's what we should do. But these aren't reasonable men. These are insane men. So you can't have a reasonable conversation with them. So God hasn't planted them and eventually they're going to be uprooted. So leave them alone, right? Leave them alone. And let them go on their way and let them go and they're going to talk bad about me. They're going to say horrible things. They're going to go slander and do this and that and, and uh, say malicious things about me. That's fine. Let, let them alone. Let them go their way. Because they're blind guides and the only people that are going to listen to them are other blind men. And then they're all going to fall into a pit together. That's what's going to happen to all of them. So he's not concerned about it. The out, the... Uh, He's not concerned with the, uh, what's going to be the outcome of this controversy. But that's how many people are today. Whenever there's a controversy, all they're thinking about, all they're concerned about is what's going to be the fallout, right? What's it going to do here? What's it going to do there? Is this person going to be upset? Are they going to leave the church? Are they going to leave the church? And we shouldn't be thinking like that. We should just be concerned with the truth, speaking the truth, doing what's right. And if people get upset and they walk away, because they don't like the truth, then they're blind guides. They're, they're going to be uprooted anyway, and they're going to fall into a pit. And this is the will of God. So just let them alone. Let them go their own way. Let them say what they're going to say. And, and that's the end of it. Now, if they want to talk and they want to come to the understanding of the truth, then that's a different issue. Then we'll meet with them and we'll talk to them. But do the Pharisees and scribes have any desire 
to work things out with Jesus. No, they have no desire to understand or know the truth or uh, understand what's good and right in the sight of God. They just want their own way, and so Jesus isn't going to give it to them. Okay, well, I may have spoken out of turn. I said we would go through verse 20, but we're actually going to stop in verse 14 tonight. And we'll pick up in verse 15, which is the explanation. It'll go in, and actually it, it's fine because the next section will actually goes very well with this passage too because it's, uh, it, it's being manifested in this woman uh, who we would consider to be a defiled woman, a Canaanite, but she's more of an Israelite than all the Jews because she has true faith. Right, so it's being manifested there in her as well. So it all goes together, and we'll just put it together uh, with, that. with that. He called her a dog, that's right. He called her a dog. Outwardly a dog, inwardly a sheep. 